You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling out to the spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to those people who lived well and died well and carry within them the legacy that is here for us, rich and beautiful, bringing all that is good and true to us from the past that we might learn from those who have gone before us. And I ask in particular for those ancestors that stood in a similar time, a time of the changing of the worlds from an old world to a new world. And we ask them to help us be the people, to become the new people who can write a truly new story for this new world. I ask these ancestors to gather around us here today and to help the living to do what the living were born to do. I ask them to help us to find the courage and the heart and the blessings around us to do these things so that that which needs to be here for those who are coming is here. And so that they will look back at our ancestors and be be proud of the people that they came from. And that we may inspire them with the way we live our lives today. So I call out to these ancestors to gather around us, to hold us well here today, that we might do what needs to be done in these moments. And let us take a moment and bring our awareness from wherever it might be into our heads and from our heads to our hearts. From our hearts to our bellies. And reach from our bellies down to the earth and take a moment, placing your little energy hands on the earth, to take a moment of profound gratitude. Let your heart open for just a moment at least to give thanks to the earth for this day. Thanks to the earth for your life. Thanks for the wonder and the beauty and the diversity of this life. Thanks for all the gifts you've been given in this life. You have not yet figured out how to open or even call a gift. We give thanks for the great abundance and all that life is doing to teach us to actually be able to be the people that we've come here to be. With great, great gratitude to the earth and for the compassion in this dreaming of life. This compassion that allows us as humans to change and to transform. And we give thanks to the earth for the simple awe of the miracle of life and take just a moment to recognize that miracle within ourselves. And with this gratitude to the earth, let's reach down through all the layers of the earth, all the way down to the very center of the earth and take a moment in the center of the earth in this essence energy of stillness, of darkness, of silence. And reach out to this energy and breathe in the energy that can sustain us and replenish us and renew us at our core, at our deepest, most essential energies. And we draw up the energy of the earth into our body into our day, into these proceedings. And with this energy, let us find the wisdom to know how to ground ourselves in our body on this planet to do what we've come here to do. 
And we call out to the energy of the earth to bring to us all the wisdom of manifestation, the great diversity of life all around us, and the teaching of how to be here in form in a good way for all living things. And may we draw in this energy of the earth and find within ourselves the capacity to create home and hearth, a a sense of belonging, and to do so in a way that sets a table for the other at our dinner that opens the door for those who are different, that these things may come into our lives and challenge us to become the people we have come here to be. We give thanks to the earth for the energy of connection, for teaching us to connect and to interconnect, and finally to reach beyond all of that into the oneness of all things. And from that oneness to take from that relationship, right relationship with ourself, and then right relationship with others right relationship with the environment and with the spirit world. And from all of this connection, may we know who we are in the world, where we stand and what we stand for. And so with the energy of the earth within us, let us move our awareness from our bellies to our hearts and our hearts to our minds and reach up and out, out to the sky. And whatever ever weather it holds for you at the moment, out through the sky and through the atmosphere, the atmosphere into the cosmos and out through the cosmos to the highest power of the universe. And But whatever name you know that power, in whatever way you conceive of it, in whatever way you understand it, connect with it. See yourself in it and it in you and know that moment of oneness and then begin to draw this energy down, drawing into your day, drawing into yourself, drawing into these proceedings, the essential energy of blessing. The energy of protection, the energy of devotion and commitment and generosity, the energy that is the benevolence of this universe and all the wisdom of the universe. And we call this down that we might be inspired in this day. We call this energy down into our head, to our heart, and our heart to our belly. And from our belly, we send it all the way down to the center of the earth. Then we take this moment to be honored by the fact that these two great legendary lovers, the earth and sky, the yin and yang, come together within us and make within us this home for the big love that has birthed this experience of form uh, so that we might share it. And in that big love, may the spirit of our heart be awakened and may the heart open as the crucible that it is, that unique place that can hold the passions of the belly, that carry the deep, deep energies of why we are here, that burn waiting to be born, and call down the crystal clear clarity of the mind that can see the world that we are in and innovate and create how we might do that and that these two energies can dance together to give birth to that third and most sacred thing a sense of why we are here in our uniqueness what our gifts are and may you find in your human heart the courage that you need to bring those gifts to the world in any way large or small So we give great gratitude for the energies gathered around us to hold us here today. And I give thanks to those of you listeners like Rachel and Louisa, Mary, Maria, and MJ, and the listeners that are able to donate financially to the show. It is with your donations that the show is kept on the air, and I give great thanks to you. 
So if this show moves you in any way in the heart, even if it moves you to irritation and frustration, you have been moved. (laughs) And if you have been moved in the heart, please do this most fundamental of shamanic things, which is to allow the movement of your heart to motivate your actions in the world. And do something to help the show to grow. If you'd like to donate, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com, click on the support button and donate any amount. You choose to, large or small. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. But please also be aware there are so many ways to give, to give your gifts, to take these teachings into your journey circles, just to take them into your life and do it yourself, to feed back to me what happens as you do these things, to share, to... um, connect, to send links, just to do whatever there is to do in the everyday world, in the internet world, in all the many ways that we share and allow things that we value in the world to grow through our actions. And so I ask you to do something, large or small, to help the show to grow and um, help it to remain relevant and meaningful in your lives. So thank you all for helping. Thanks to Co-Creator Network for another year of support as our producers. And I'd like to give thanks now uh, to our guest today, Charles Eisenstein. Charles, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So for those of you that don't know, Charles' um, new book is recently out and available. And the book is called The More Beautiful World, Our Hearts Know is Possible. And if you've been listening regularly, you know that we've been referring to some of Charles' work, online essays, um, and ideas about um, what it means to be the people who are going to who are right now writing the story for the new world, and so for those of you that haven't actually been listening along, um, I'll share with you that Charles is a speaker and a writer, focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution, and I would add to that and the heart. We have been talking about his ideas um, and essays for a couple of years now, actually. And his viral short films and essays online have established him as a genre-defying social philosopher and a countercultural intellectual. I mean, haven't you wondered who we'll be talking about in the future the way we talk about Socrates? I mean, haven't you wondered, you know, hasn't there been anybody thinking since then? I mean... Anyway, Eisenstein has graduated from Yale University in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy and spent the next 10 years as a Chinese-English translator. Charles is the author of Sacred Economics and The Scent of Humanity, and he currently lives in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania with his family. If you'd like to um, find out more about events and what Charles is doing, go to charleseisenstein.net, which is um, Charles. E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N dot net. And if you'd like to contact Charles, use the contact form on the website. And um, I'm just going to make a little plug for this. As we move into a different world where people don't have a huge support network that they're paying, creating great overhead that is very costly to support them in doing the work they do in the world. I ask you all to respect people's boundaries and to use contact forms and <laughs> not expect everybody you want to talk to to be willing to personally email you at any time of the day or night. <laughs> so <laughs> I encourage you uh, to use Charles' beautiful new website, use his lovely contact form, and do connect but do so with some respect for um, as we move into the world of gift, 
that we will also need to move there with some new respect for each other and our gifts. Uh, So with that said, I also want to say we are live today. And so you are absolutely welcome to call in today if you have questions about the show's topic. Um, The number is 512-772-1938, as usual. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site or simply email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. And I would be happy to read your email on the air. Um, I think that's all of our business. All right. So, Charles, again, welcome. Hello. So let's begin um, by, I don't know, getting to know you just a bit. So maybe you could just share some of the pivotal moments that, that brought you to a place where you sat down and wrote this particular book. Well, this book is kind of different from my other books. The other books I went into some kind of hibernation, you know, and did a lot of research and reading and spent years writing them. But this book was, uh, was gestated as I was traveling and speaking a lot and having, uh, conversations and, and responding to, um, the different reactions that my work is generating, um, and hearing stories, especially there's a lot of, uh, storytelling in this book. And I've, and, I've been working with story for quite a while. Uh, it was one of the main themes in the ascent of humanity, but it's been growing. It's had a growing presence in my understanding. Um, you know, whereas, you know, even in, you know, when I wrote the ascent of humanity, I was cognizant on some level that the world is created from stories or even that the world is a story, but that was kind of, a uh, titillating intellectual idea. Uh, But the reality of that has been growing in me. Um, And I've been uh, wanting to develop my skills as a storyteller uh, and step more into that archetype, especially because the whole idea of like, you know, an expert in front of a group, you know, in front of an audience, uh, (laughs) delivering the knowledge from, from on high, like literally on high, you know, usually you're up on a stage or something like that. Like that's part of the old story, you know, that's kind of um, obsolete. And, and so what archetype does resonate with the kind of talents and gifts that I have? Uh, it's, it's maybe the archetype of a storyteller. So I've been, so I, if there's one uh, key theme in the book, it's story. Um, and actually, before we go any farther, I also want to uh, put a little caveat in there about old story and new story. Part of the old story is this kind of fetishism for newness. Uh, if it's, if it's good, then it's new. And if it's new, then it's good. And we have to move past all of the things that bind us to, to tradition and to the world, you know, and, and, and ascend past these connections and always newer and better. Um, and this kind of devaluing of the past and of tradition and of our origins is part of the problem. So nonetheless, it is new where we're heading and where this show is speaking from and, and speaking toward is new for an industrial civilization. That's for sure. But it's speaking of an old story that was told before the new story. <laughs> the industrial right. revolution was a new story. <laughs> yeah. Right. An ancient story, I would say. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Which you actually talk to when you talk about the three seeds in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there is the there there is in in your book, you know, this idea of their small s stories, and then there's the capital S story. You know, there's the yeah, yeah, and you know, it's interesting in 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 shamanism, it, it, it's as if that well, one first trying to translate shamanic languages into English is always problematic in the first place. Um, <laughs> English, I find real well, and you as a translator between Chinese and English would know even more how challenging certain concepts are in English. It's like we didn't invent the words at all. Um, but, right. but, you know, they, they speak of the story and totally interchangeably with the dream that's totally interchangeable with the song. It's like they can't quite land on the English word that's really um, saying whatever it is that this really is. It's kind of um, – for me, that's kind of beautiful, um, although it's mm-hmm. a little confusing sometimes for people. So – um, so would you like to say, you know, just sort of succinctly, what are you talking about when you're talking about a new story for the people? What, what, what are you meaning when you say mm-hmm. that? Yeah. One word that might even be better than story is mythology, uh, which mm-hmm. is a set of stories that yeah. are very deep, you know, that contain the explanation for why we're here, for how the world works for they tell you what's important, what's valuable, who you are, where you have come from, where you're going, what the role of humanity is on earth. You know, that, that's a mythology. And, and we have such a mythology. We, we think, you know, the word mythology has become kind of tainted to mean something, you know, it's just a myth. It's not true. You know, it's just a story. It's not objectively true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole idea that there are, that we now have gone beyond story and mythology and um, are through you know through the scientific method querying an objective reality outside of ourselves that in itself is a story that in itself is based on um, unquestioned assumptions about the nature of self and universe which I don't know they could be true they could be not true but we don't usually question those uh, or haven't until recently in our culture, with some notable exceptions. But, but so that is the what I would call the, the the passing mythology, the old mythology. And it says it answers these basic questions. You know, who are you? Well, you are a separate self in a world of of other, in a world of impersonal forces and and generic particles that are bouncing around that don't have the qualities of a self. They don't have, they don't have what you have. They don't have intelligence or purpose or desires or anything like that. They're just a bunch of stuff, each one identical to the next one. Uh, That is, so that's part of the story. Another part of it is that, well, because we live in this universe that's indifferent to ourselves and has no desires intentions, intelligence of its own. Therefore, our quest is to exert more and more control over this indifferent or even hostile, unpredictable, chaotic world outside of ourselves. So human destiny in this story becomes to dominate and master everything outside of ourselves. Um, And and so there there are other dimensions of it too, um, but that's the gist of it. 
it's, you could call it the story of separation, the story of control. And you can see how so many of our cultural institutions tap into that story. Uh, money, for example, um, it, the way that money works today, at least, it reinforces our perception of separateness. Uh, it puts us into competition with each other. It turns the world into commodities that are you know, generic and standard and impersonal, just like our mythology says. Um, and and other, other institutions too, you know, politics, medicine. Um, the medicine's a good example of, of how, at least, you know, in, in its dominant conception, it's about winning the war against biology, against the germs, against the processes of decay. Uh, it's, it's a conquest of nature. Um, to improve upon the body with technology, to uh, regulate hormone levels, regulate levels of lipids and whatever. So, so, so basically, so that's, that's what I call the old story, um, a, a mythology. And it's falling apart on many levels, conceptual and institutional. All the systems built on it aren't working very well anymore. And we are approaching a transition. Uh, I don't know how long you want me to keep talking. Uh, I could. <laughs> well, you're sort of talking up to that lovely piece in the book where you say, you know, it is this story that unites us across so many areas of activism and healing. The more we act from it, the better we're able we are to create a world that reflects it. The more we act from separation, yes. the more we helplessly create more of that too. And as I always say to, you know, our my listeners, it's like, you know, there's no off button. You're creating something all the time. So you mm -hmm. need to choose what you're creating. Yeah. So, yeah. so then how do we get from this? You know, you're, I think you're very gracious to call it the story of separation. I just call it the lie of separation. <laughs> but I'm, you're more graceful than I am. Um, so you get there, though, from this separation to a really important piece of what may be at the heart or the center of a new story, which is the story of interbeing. Right. So it's, it's if we are not, in fact, separate selves in a world of other, then what are we? Uh, and the answer that, that most human beings have had for millions of years, or at least tens of thousands, is that who you are is the totality of your relationships, uh, that you are everything and, and in some sense as well, nothing, uh, that, that everything that happens in the world is happening to you because it's not really separate from you. Every relationship, uh, reflects something in yourself. Everything that you do to the world, you will do to yourself because you're not really separate. Uh, it also says, therefore that, whatever we perceive externally has the same quality of life and intelligence and consciousness that we ourselves do. It could not be otherwise if, if self and universe are part of each other. Therefore, uh, a mountain, a river, of course, an animal or a plant, but even a rock, even a cloud, even the wind, even the sun, the moon, Everything has the qualities of a self. Everything has intelligence, consciousness, and so forth. So we are in a living universe. 
And that means that our relationship to those other beings can no longer be one of um, manipulation and control, oblivious to what wants to happen, what wants to unfold, oblivious to this purpose and intention and desire and intelligence that's outside of ourselves. So that implies that technology has to change, uh, no longer being about uh, dominating and controlling, but maybe starting with um, listening and with the goal of serving that which wants to be born, uh, co-creating. Um, and, and I mean, I could even go and, and give some examples of what that might look like, but, but it's a very different mindset that is born from the perspective of interbeing. Uh, and, and also on a, on a very personal level too, it re-empowers the small invisible acts that feel significant, but that our logic, which is really mostly a logic of separation for most of us. I mean, I'm talking about myself too. You know, I'm formulating these ideas, but in so many ways, I'm still habitually reenacting habits of separation. Uh, uh, it, 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 so it re-empowers, right, so these, these small invisible acts that seem um, logically to not have any effect on the broader world at all. Um, these small acts of care uh, and, and, and healing and kindness um, that feel important. You know, it feels important to, to you know, go take care of a, a suffering person, a, a, a child, you know, a, a, an elderly person. Um, but, you know, the cynic could say, well, how is that going to remedy climate change? You know, what does it matter that person's going to die anyway, or that person isn't as important because they're not a decision maker. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Charles, you could be, you know, writing articles for mass media, you know, and instead you mm -hmm. spent your afternoon like talking to your friend, you know, who's going through a hard time and you helped one person maybe, but you could have been having, making a big splash, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is a really common thing actually for people that come into a shamanic practice and they learn to journey. They're asking their helping spirits for guidance in terms of actions. You know, what actions do I take for whatever to happen? And they get answers like sing, <laughs> you know, right. dance. And they toss these answers out because they can't understand how this small, seemingly unrelated act is going to move them towards this objective that they have, much less seeing how these small, seemingly unrelated acts could affect a larger change, even beyond their, their personal objective. And this is, this is one of the greatest challenges for people who want to sincerely live shamanically, is trusting these kinds of small answers from your helping spirits and doing them anyway until you start to do it enough to go, oh... <laughs> right. Oh, this is what's really going on here, and this is this is what was necessary to move me to a place where I'm not even seeing the situation in the same way now. And now yes. I would ask an entirely different question because the whole what was the problem is now something else entirely, and maybe not even a problem anymore. But now I'm starting to be one with the 
the larger situation. And now I ask different questions and get different answers. And sometimes the answers are, are really significant and challenging, but sometimes they're, they are very simple and they are so often dismissed even by mature practitioners because they just seem too insignificant relative to the task at hand. Right. And like you said, we, it's that logic of separation that we, we, we all were raised in and kind of programmed in. Right, because we've been inculcated with a certain uh, understanding of causality, of cause and effect that essentially comes down to force. You know, a force is exerted on a mass and it makes something happen. So when, when we ask a spirit guide, well, how do I achieve this goal? Really, from the mind of separation, we're asking, how can I make this happen? What's step one that will cause this to happen? And then step two will cause that to happen. And that will cause the next thing to happen. And, and so there's um, a map of, of that's under our control because, you know, like how do you, you know, um, gather a thousand people for some event? Well, you know, what if you paid them? You could make them come. Okay, well, how am I going to get that money? Like, like there's, that's one way of doing things in this world, relying on what you know how to make happen through various instruments of force, manipulating other people, compelling other people, paying other people, um, using your own hands, even, uh, your, your own bodily force. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, it, however, if the thing that we want to achieve is beyond our understanding of possibility in its force-based causality uh, facet. In, in, if it's, uh, how can I say it? If, if, if we don't know how to make it happen, then what do you do? Exactly. exactly. You know, and, 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 then, yeah. and then, right. And so then you have to uh, follow a different logic, a different path. I call it an invisible path uh, where, you, where it's like, you know, there it is. There's the destination, and you know it's not a fantasy because you've been given a vision of it. You didn't make up the vision. You've been given a vision where you've had an experience that, that communicates through the heart that this is possible. This can exist on this earth. You know that it's there. And you don't know how to get there. There it is on the, on the, the hilltop five miles away. And I'm standing right here. And it's just jungle between me and that, and that destination. And, and and there's no path. I don't have a map. I don't see a path. But then I look and I, and I see, ah, well, there is actually a path that is right in front of my face. And, and I can only see, but I can only see two or three steps ahead. Mm-hmm. And then the path disappears into the, into the vegetation. Uh, and, and so I begin walking that. And sometimes the path seems to be leading away from the destination, Sometimes it leads into uh, uh, a thicket and I can't even see the destination. But at each moment, I can follow the guidance of what direction is the next step? Which, what, what step do I take now? And as I do that, the path becomes visible. And I think that's much, you know, a lot of us are in a place like that where, where we have a vision. Maybe it's a very deeply buried vision. Maybe we can, couldn't even describe it, but we know that there's a there there and we don't know how to get there. So we need to follow this other guidance and maybe, you know, that step in the opposite direction, like, you know, dance, sing. Well, how is that going to get anything done? But, 
you do that and then and then you see a path you hadn't seen before you know because your 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 vision has has shifted so well, yeah and, and a lot of people don't you know they we we tend to think you know you've actually already talked about this a little bit and we'll go more into it but you know i have a dream or a vision and now i will make it happen and then oh my god am i ever going to live my dreams kind of panic instead of realizing at least from a shamanic perspective, which I think is the same thing of what you're talking about, is that actually the reality is coming out of the story. The visions are already here to be received and 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 manifested one way or another. But that because of that, because it's actually you know being dreamt in a sense through us, and we're just the hands and the mouths that are are part of the action that is the manifestation that. The only reason we see two steps is because by the time we've taken two steps, we've changed everything. So right. the third and fourth steps are now different than they would have been had we received them when we asked for one and two. And that is so frustrating for people to accept that we don't get the whole path because everything is changing by our simple actions of taking step one and then step two. And you know we need to learn to be – you know, feel blessed that we see step one <laughs> and take it um, so that step two can emerge and three and four. And um, instead of kind of holding everything hostage until we're given the whole story because it's unfolding. And we, yes. You know, we can't have it because <laughs> it's not here yet. <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. but it's not manifest, like you said, in a map. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the same is true for our society as a whole as well. So I wanted to kind of just bring us back to another piece of what we were talking about, which is for this to happen, though, we we can't, as you said, squelch the expression of your gifts by thinking that they must do some, something, that you must do something big with them. Um, and how that idea invalidates the small and beautiful strivings of the bulk of humanity. It invalidates paradoxically the very things that we must start doing en masse to sustain a livable planet. And um, I think this is very important that, that you do a beautiful, I think you do a beautiful job in the book helping people to understand it isn't either or. That yes, right. we do need to take these small actions and the one be, and in some ways because taking the small actions that feel right, even if we don't understand how it adds up to the bigger thing, supports us internally. It supports our inner strength for newness. For, and I don't mean newness like you were saying before, but newness yeah. in the sense of being able to be in that discomfort of being part of creating something new. And yet we will need to participate in massive change but whatever that's going to be it is not exactly what it looks like from here because yeah. we're still in this old story looking at it and we only have so many answers available to us in this way of looking at things and the 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 transformation of this is not going to be in this set of answers necessarily yeah i mean on some level on some level everything we do is a small thing you know even if you're yeah. doing something that's overtly political like you're still just using your voice, even if you're mm -hmm. uh, trying to persuade other people to use their voices, you're just using your voice to do that. You're having one conversation at a time. Um, you're you know, going out into Gezi Park. Uh, and that same logic, yeah, what does it matter if you know, we 
we protest in Gezi Park? What does it matter if, if there's one more or less person? You know, why should I go? Um, so I think that we need another way of making decisions besides uh, the instrumental utility of those decisions, you know, the, the calculable effects. Uh, and a lot of times, I mean, even like, you know, progressives or, or, or you know, uh, environmentalists uh, or spiritual folks, they'll, they'll, they'll say when asked or when they ask themselves, well, why am I doing this? They'll have a utilitarian reason for it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why are you, um, you know, riding your bicycle? Well, you know, it's because it doesn't produce greenhouse gases, you know, or why mm -hmm. do you uh, recycle your your bottles, you know, well, because, uh, it creates, it takes a lot less energy to, to, um, recycle them than it does to, to manufacture new ones. And, and, and so we're, we're in this habit of justifying things that we do based on these ends. Uh, and then we get to congratulate ourselves for being ethical and principled and, and moral. But I think that, Honestly, many of the things that we really need to be doing, um, can only, you can't really justify them that way um, without going through a lot of contortions. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, some things, uh, you can't think of how they're going to make a difference. And also, if you are saying to yourself and others, do these ecological things uh, in order to be an ethical person or to be a good person. The motivation that you're invoking is basically conditional self-approval. You're basically saying you get to like yourself if you're a good person and you'll be a good person if you do these things. So you're actually tapping into a fear-based motivation. And the result will be that you or the people you're talking to will do just enough to be able to approve of themselves. But that is not enough. In fact, the easiest way to approve of yourself is to, is to you know, create some story in, in which it doesn't really matter. Uh, and why should I do it? And everybody else is going to McDonald's. Why shouldn't I? You know, um, and it's perfectly okay. And, and you know, if, so we're, I don't know if I'm being clear here, but, but I think that it's, um, kind of a bargain with the devil to use <laughs> the the inducement of you get to like yourself, so do these good things. Well, and um, it's it's still the old story. It's still the old yeah. motivation for you know going to church or whatever. It's still the same ideas. You're inherently not a good person, so you have to do these things to be a good right. person. And like you said, it's fear based. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things that I think is amazing about your book is that you actually sort of thought and felt your way there because there's many of these ideas that are shared in shamanic communities, but they're just drawn from this old knowledge. And I just think it's, it's amazing how you got yourself there and the, and the gift that you've given people who don't really want to talk about shamanism, which is a lot of people. And it, it is the gift that you've given by laying out essentially, like you said, these stories, these conversations, this way, it's like the journey a contemporary human would go through in their own mind 
when they actually hear the phrase, the more beautiful world my heart knows is possible. And then that that idea tries to make its way through the brain and then it comes mm-hmm. upon all of these arguments you know and, and each chapter cynicism insanity force science climate despair hope hope morphogenesis naivete you know and and this is it's it's all in all of our brains and it's just really a gift that that you you just walk through it in this book so it's so humanely. And so I really encourage people, A, to buy the book, read it and read it again and again. And partly because what I really want to speak about today jumps over all those chapters, which in and of themselves need to be discussed, to get to reality. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because reality is where we start to ask the question, so how do we, how do we make it happen? And, um, and partly because with this audience, you know, we're sort of preaching to the choir. So why don't we get on with that? And so um, you make a really important distinction, though. Well, many really important distinctions. But in this particular chapter, the one is the distinction between creating a vision and receiving a vision, which you've actually already mentioned. But this is a really critical discernment. And I was wondering if you could share with us, when did that strike you? Like, how did that strike you? Or you finally went, oh, this is the thing. It needs to be received, not created. Uh, I guess I received that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it makes a huge difference though. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I've played around with kind of, you know, new age reality creation things. Um, and, you know, like, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll try that. You know? So I went around repeating some mantra to myself, you know, um, <laughs> whatever it was, you know, I, and, you know, I'm in perfect health or I have, you know, millions of dollars or whatever. Um, but there was part of me, it's like, yeah, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> I didn't really believe it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, belief goes all the way to the bones. You yeah. can't just repeat different things in your head and change your beliefs thereby. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, if you have, if you've kind of concocted a vision and you're trying to put energy into it, your energy is going to be divided if on some level you don't really believe it. And maybe why aren't you able to, to – okay, so – right. So basically you're going to be lying. You know, you're going to be saying you believe something that you don't actually believe and you're not going to be able to create very much that way. Uh, and what then is a true vision? It's something that you didn't make up yourself but you saw it. I mean there it is. Now, it still may be hard to fully invest it with your belief because there, are, there could be uh, wounds that, that block fully embracing it. You know, like as soon as you see that gorgeous vision, the, the wound comes up of, of, well, I don't deserve it or it's too late or it's impossible or I'm crazy. I'm deluding myself. Like, like deep psychological wounds come up and those have to be worked with. That shadow work has to be done. Otherwise, you'll get temporary results only. Uh, but in the end, and a lot of people have, have been through this with their affirmations and their the secret and stuff like that. You know, it, sometimes it works for a while. But, but if you suppress the negativity with positive thinking, it erupts eventually in some other way because these wounds want to be healed and they will tirelessly call situations into your life in order 
that they can be can be felt and expressed and, and you know exposed to consciousness so that they can be healed. And it also results in us create you know doing all of this work to create this new reality, which we then realize is actually just a new version of the old one. Right. That's what happens if you try to make up a vision. You're you're it's coming from everything that you already are, everything that, you know, you're conditioning. Uh, we really need something beyond that today. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and the willingness when we have that vision that is beyond us to do, to do, to address the pain, the discomfort, everything that arises as we hold that vision and choose to move towards it. Because if we don't, like you said, if we don't, it's going to come out anyway on one hand. But on the other hand, it just, you know, the world outside of us has to reflect that back to us. That's how that mirroring relationship works. So if I'm not willing to change it internally, I force the world to stay in that dynamic with me. And I need right. to give the world a break. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> and make it not have to show me all these things in myself. I could simply choose to look at. I could simply yeah. choose to be with. Yeah. Although, you know, I mean, I think that our, our capacity even to choose that is limited. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm a bit wary of any um, spiritual, any item of spiritual practice that I can take credit for. Like, you know, well, at least I am choosing to face my shadow, unlike some people. Like, actually, when do I actually choose to face it? It's usually when it becomes unavoidable somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or even if I do feel like I'm making a choice to face it, um, even then it was presented to me through some generous agency. Uh, so, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, th I think that there's definitely something to be said to um, seek out situations that enable us to discover these hurting things inside of us and to feel them and to heal them. I think, um, you know, safe places to feel grief and to have the grief witnessed and to be held in grief so that the pain can be integrated um, and no longer unconsciously drive us. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of beautiful work going on, um, working with, with grief and working with, um, holding space for the shadow and, and, and things like that. Um, yeah. I, yeah. So I, and I also interrupted you because you were going through your, your steps of what needs to happen. Um, here, which was to receive the vision that feels true, and then you were talking about healing the wounds and doubts that the vision illuminates, what, right. what arises as we hold that vision and, and endeavor to believe in it. Um, and then the third is to bow into service to that right. which wants to be born. So perhaps you could talk to that a bit. Part three. Yeah. Um, yeah, you recognize that this vision has come to you for a reason. Uh, it's not just some random hallucination or, or it's not just some, uh, some kind of comforting thing. It, it, it's come to you with a request, actually. It, 
it's come to you because you have a gift that is necessary for that vision to manifest. The vision is a call to service. And when, when you bow into service to that, when you, when you accept that and say, yes, I accept this invitation, I will serve you, then this being has tremendous power and it will arrange opportunities that enable you to serve. Uh, it will present you with synchronicities, um, uh, opportunities that, that you could not have contrived yourself that are, that are beyond anything that you could have predicted. Uh, and so you, the more that, that, that any of us bow into service to a true vision, the more you end up, you know, being in just the right place at the right time and meeting just the right person. And there's kind of a flow to it. And even the obstacles, there's a flow even to the obstacles because they, they seem to bring up just the issue that needed to be addressed at that moment. Um, and that, uh, uh, it opens us up to a creative power that, is far beyond anything that we could achieve through the techniques of force of making stuff happen. You can't, you know, there, there's no, there's no equal to being at the right place at the right time again and again and again. So you develop a magical creative ability. One of the things that I, I talk with people about because of that is that there's this, there's this sense of, miraculous things happening and but also just this sense it's not it's not that living you know bowing into service to a vision you've received isn't going to take effort it is <laughs> it takes a lot of sustained effort but there is an effortless quality to it because it's not about force it's not force effort it's just passion discipline being human all that stuff but that as as this larger force begins to orchestrate things, there is a way that things come together that is so unbelievably simple and yet so also unbelievably complex when you think about it. All the things that had to happen for this to come right. together and you just kind of shake your head and just go, okay, I'm just going to call that a miracle because it's making my head hurt thinking about it because it's just yeah. – it's really unbelievable. And so then when you look at force – and it just looks so um, gross, so so heavy-handed, so club-handed relative to participating in and allowing what wants to happen, happen, and being the, the human part of that, whatever that is. Yeah. So there's another aspect in your book that I think um, is important in this as we move out of a story of separation and all that that has brought – um, to this idea of reunion and in it what I see a lot in the book is this the very paradoxical lens of complementary dualism versus this sort of old story antagonistic dualism and you talk about spirit and matter and activism and spirituality and these things that in the old story they're, they're put up in, in opposition to each other and mm -hmm. how in the new story they're, they're growing in and out of each other in a sense that they, they can't exist without the other. Very yin, yin yongish. <laughs> yeah. And, um, um, 
what comes out of this that I thought was a very interest, interesting and profound statement in your spirit chapter is um, to work on the self, it is necessary to work on the world. And to work effectively in the world, it is necessary to work on the self. Right. Um, which seems to me in some ways what we were just sort of getting at is mm-hmm. um, it isn't either or. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, there – had have, has been a time, and and you still hear it sometimes that where, where people saw um, spirituality as kind of this bourgeois diversion uh, or indulgence, you know, this this distraction from actually doing something in the world. You know, instead you go into your yoga studio, you know, and you and you chant Om, you know, when you could be out there. Uh, protesting to reform the prisons or something like that. Uh, and, and, but instead you go in there and you feel all is well with the world and you kind of, you know, you get this, this, uh, um, you know, these good, these good feelings, uh, these spiritual feelings and, and you walk out of there all serene while the atrocities continue to unfold. Um, so, you know, and there is something in that critique, I mean that that does happen, uh, and you can it, it it you can detect the self righteousness sometimes um, of of people who are committing that kind of of spiritual bypass. Um, but ultimately, you know, the spiritual practitioners can turn it around and they can say, "Hey, there you are, you know, out there uh, uh, heroically trying to save the world and." And how do you know that you're not – how do you know that you're actually doing any good? How do you know that you're not just recreating the same institutions that you grew up in and that you've internalized helplessly if you haven't exposed those to the light of awareness? Uh, How do you know what's hidden in yourself? Um, So I I think that – so that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. Um, I'd like to say something about – even uh, non-oppositional dualism. I mean, I think really, and I, I guess in Taoism it's understood that yin and yang are uh, two aspects of the same thing. And I think we could say the same about spirit and matter. They're kind of these convenient categories where we say, well, what, what, what is spirit? It's kind of those parts of matter that we don't recognize or understand. But when you really dig down into matter itself, you know, it turns out that it's just vibration. You know, it's just energy. It's matter itself is, is everything that we say spirit is. That describes matter too. And then what's spirit? Um, it obviously uh, interacts with the material world. So how could it really be separate from the material world? And this is a, a classical problem in philosophy. You know, if, if the soul or the spirit is separate from the body, then how does it interact with the body? And if it does interact, then it must not actually be separate. So I, I, I just, I mean, this can get really philosophical and metaphysical, but I think that it's important because one of the reasons why we've trashed the planet is that we've seen matter as not having the qualities of spirit. As, as being less important than spiritual things. And I think that we need to really uh, resacralize matter. 
um, that's a it's that's an ongoing theme yeah, <laughs> on the sure. show, definitely. Um, partly because of my I went to college and I studied chemistry, and all hard science taught me was how unbelievably magical and alive our world is, and and you know because I went I studied science at the time when this new science was happening, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the new story basically um, mm-hmm. in science. But before we finish here today, I wanted to touch on one other thing that that is part of your book and part of your thinking, because it's another thing we've been talking about on the show um, is different ways to understand evil, which sometimes ends up being the sort of trump card argument around all of this. And um, I was wondering if you would just share. A bit of how you kind of unpack this, what people are really saying, well, you know, well, but Charles, you're just not really looking at this dark side of human nature. (laughs) Right, right. So the argument says that, yeah, you know, nonviolence is fine and so forth. And but some people out there are just evil. And the only language they understand is force and they just have to be stopped. And there's no way around it. Okay, so who are these evil people? Um, what positions do they occupy in society? If, you're, if, if you follow this line of thinking and you say essentially that, that, well, first, how do you know that somebody is evil? Well, they're doing evil things, right? That's how you tell. And we have this, this deep programming that says the reason people do evil things is because they're evil people. This comes up in, in ordinary conversations. You know, can you believe what so-and-so did? It's inexcusable, you know, or you someone calls you up and, and says and complains about their ex-husband, you know, and then he, do you know what he did? He dropped the kids off on the curb and sped off spraying gravel in their faces without even ringing the doorbell, you know, and you're supposed to join in outrage. How could he? And the subtext is neither of us would do such a thing because we're better than he is. Like he, there is like this spark of evil. There's this evil evilness in him. And so you look around the world and there's a lot of horrible things happening. And you look, well, who's doing it? Well, it's the corporate executives, you know, it's the bankers, it's the politicians, you know, basically who it is, is everybody in power. If you really believe that the only way that, so if you believe that they are irredeemable, uh, that they can only be stopped by force, that, that evil is the explanation for all of this or the primary explanation then it's hopeless because they have a lot more force than any of us do. Actually, and there's a lot of uh, psychology research, social psychology especially, that confirms this. Um, Ordinary people can do evil things when they're put in the right circumstances. These circumstances could be external or they could be the internalization of a lifetime of external circumstances. So this, you know, so Christina, are you the kind of person who would deliver painful and perhaps fatal electric shocks to test subjects uh, just because they got the wrong answer on a test? Are you that kind of person? And you'd say, no, of course not. And every listener would say, no, of course not. But as a matter of fact, Almost all of us are precisely that kind of person, as the Milgram experiments demonstrated. You know, you create the right setup and, and, and people deliver these shocks. Or we could ask, 
are you the kind of person who would um, uh, force uh, a single mother to uh, leave her child uh, with relatives so that she can work for starvation wages uh, with three bathroom days breaks a day, 12 hours a day, working for a pittance uh, in horrible conditions. Are you the kind of person who would make somebody do that just so you could save a dollar on a piece of clothes? You'd say, no, of course not. But most of us are exactly such a person. Or are you the kind of, because every time we buy clothes, or are you the kind of person who would, who would evict indigenous tribes from the rainforest, clear-cut it, dig pit mines, and take all the rare earth minerals just so you could have a, a new cell phone, you know? Case closed. <laughs> um, and we don't have time for me to go more into the argument. I mean, I talk about psychopaths and all kinds of stuff in the book, but, but you get the gist of it. Basically, it is that... People do the things they do because of the totality of their situation. And if I were in that situation, I would do the same because I am no different fundamentally from you. We are the same being. And so then how does that – how does it play out then in, in, in the new story? Well, you understand that, that it's the totality of the internal and external situation. So you seek to understand what that is. And how can you change the situation? How can you change the story that the person is living in that makes everything that they do totally sensible? Uh, how do you change the set of, of pressures and influences that act on this person? How can you change the belief systems that their actions are coming from that make their actions seem like the right thing to do? You know, that, that how do you create a revolution where everybody is on the winning side, really, is what it comes down to. And so it seems like we come back round to through that to understanding why the community and the values held in the community were important to the individual and then the individual to the community because it's important to create the circumstances such that people give their gifts versus feel they need to act in evil ways. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example. You know, if you have a society that um, rewards generosity and where, where whoever is generous receives generosity in turn, then greed is um, uh, nonsensical. Yeah. Why would you yeah. hoard more than you need when the, you get benefits from sharing? You know, and, I think, and, yeah, I think this is one of the key things, the old wisdoms – hold that we will need to understand about the new story is that again we're not separate <laughs> and part of right. the word we use for people that aren't separate is community <laughs> so, yeah and, and it's yeah. really hard you, you know you, you can't necessarily make this transition just by through an act of will where you decide you're going to start seeing things through eyes of unity i mean you you who we are is Again, the totality of our relationships. So if you're surrounded yeah. with relationships that are pulling you into the story of separation, um, it's going to be inescapable. That and you need new friends. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and all of us are in the old story in one way or another. Yeah. 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 Well, Charles, thank you so much for being with us today for your work and um, – for all that you um, are and will be giving. Thank you very much. 
Thanks, Christina. It was it was uh, really awesome to be on the show. Thank you. So everybody, um, if you want to get more information, you can go to uh, Charles' website, Charles Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N dot net. Um, And if you want to communicate with Charles, you can go through the contact link on the website. Um, So again, Charles, thank you. Thanks to your ancestors for dreaming of a better future so you could be here with us. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I give thanks to all the ancestors for gathering around us here today. I give thanks for the earth below the sky above, and for the heart that unites us all. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good week.